We'd love to hear from you about how you found season one and what you'd like to see in season two. Please leave us your feedback at the.ismiley slash feedback. This is Muslim Footprints, an opportunity to deep dive into Muslim civilizations through the ages, accompanied by some of the best experts and academics in their field. My name is Aisha Dyer. Until now on Muslim Footprints, we've been talking about famous philosophers from a thousand years ago, like Nasser Khosrow, who we launched this podcast with, or the thinkers and polymaths that crisscrossed Al-Andalus. And sometimes we might forget that philosophers also exist today. Well, let me introduce you to Suleiman Bashir Diania. Professor Diania teaches at Columbia University and is one of the most distinguished philosophers of our time. What's more, like those philosophers of ancient times, his faith is part and parcel of his work. This episode focuses on his autobiography, Le Fagot de ma mémoire. Le Fagot is a bundle of twigs. In Francophone Africa, it refers to the wood that's used to make a fire. Here, Professor Diania has gone off and collected the twigs of his memory, interweaving the story of his professional trajectory and the Muslim beliefs and motivations that have guided him. He wrote these memoirs in 2020 during the pandemic which he says was the first time he really stopped to take stock of his life. Here's our conversation. So by way of introduction, you are a professor at Columbia University. You teach in philosophy and in French and in math? No math, no. No math, philosophy and French. In the philosophy department, I teach history of logic and mathematics, history of from time to time, yeah. You are a distinguished philosopher, and um, until now on Muslim Footprints, we've been talking about famous philosophers from a thousand years ago, and sometimes we forget that philosophers also exist today. But at the same time, which is unusual for someone who isn't a religious figure, your work and your thinking is infused with your Muslim beliefs. There's no separation really between the two, which I have to say, I've not really come across very often. And so it was very empowering and inspiring to discover you and to read your work. So we will talk more about that as we go on. I want to start with dance. Dance? Wow. You discovered early on that you loved music and that you loved dance so much so that your parents would take you to the cinema with them and you'd dance yourself to sleep in the trailers so they could watch the film in peace. <laughs> Tell us what dance means for you. Absolutely. Yes, it is, it is really a very sweet memory for me, although 
it is a memory infused with what my parents told me about it because obviously I was very young at that time to remember, to fully remember what it was like. But yes, as far as I remember, I've always loved dancing. I grew up in a region of Senegal where there was a particular rhythm known as Bugarabu, which is both the name of a particular rhythm, very much like reggae. It is like reggae music, reggae beats, and it is also the name of an instrument, of, of a tom-tom that you, you find in that region. And maybe what it became later, I mean, on a theoretical level, what it became in my work was my own reflection on African art through the writings and works of Senegalese philosopher, statesman, and poet, Leopold Sedar Senghor, who mentioned that African art is primarily about rhythm. This is true of art in general, and especially about African art. But the rhythm not just coming from dance instruments, but the rhythm of visual forms as well. You could talk about the rhythm of a sculpture, the rhythm of an African mask, and so on and so forth. So somehow, my love of music, my love of dance, was translated into the work I have devoted to the philosophy of African art as a philosophy of rhythm as well. There's a wonderful anecdote that you share about the Gaston Berger University, named after a French philosopher who was born in Saint-Louis like yourself. And at this inauguration, Berger's son Maurice said, one must celebrate this moment by the whole body speaking its true language, that of dance. And so he began dancing. So I suppose you know, and you describe dance as your way of being at one with the world, kind of in tune with the universe. So tell us that story about Maurice and about dance in the Sufi tradition. Absolutely. And yes, I, I, I love those stories that tell such a beautiful thing about the philosophy of dance, the real meaning of these harmonious gestures that you accomplish with your body, the way in which with your body, you connect to the world. And let me just recall that story about Maurice Bejar. Maurice Bejar is a famous, world-renowned, was, he passed away a few years ago, a renowned choreographer. And it is not so well known that he was the son of this French philosopher, Gaston Berger. And that also Gaston Berger himself was of mixed race, he had a grandmother who was from Saint-Louis in Senegal. And for that reason, Gaston Berger himself always identified somehow with, with Senegal. And uh, Leopold Sédar Senghor, who gave its name to the University of Gaston, the University in Saint-Louis, decided to call it Gaston Berger for that reason. So when the day of the inauguration, Maurice Béjar came as the son of Gaston Berger, and when he was given the mic to, to say a few words, he said, the only thing I'm going to say, I'm going to express with my body, the language of body, to just express my gratitude 
for this way of making the name of my father associated with this institution. And so he danced. And this reminded me at that time of the true significance of dance. Because something that is known but not usually recalled, Maurice Bejar himself converted to Islam. So I remembered just this other anecdote of Jafar, the cousin of the Prophet, manifesting his joy by just standing up and dancing. And when the Prophet asked him, well, what is this? He responded, I've seen people in Abyssinia expressing their joy of being in the presence of the Nagashi, of the Negus of Abyssinia in that way. This idea that at one point, the only language that is suitable to a given situation is the language of the body. And the idea that is the embodiment of some kind of spirituality, that the body is spiritual in a way and is very important. And that is the, the, the meaning of dance. At one point, you write with your body your own relationship to the world. Let's, for example, look at an interpretation, one of the many interpretations of the gestures in the Muslim prayer. I am very much interested in one interpretation that reminds us that when you are standing and then you have this inclination and you have the prosternation, actually your body is writing Allah, is writing the name of God in the vertical position, in this position, which is, if you turn it around, it becomes a lamb, and then vertical again, and prosternation, you have the alif, the lamb, another alif, and the her of, of prosternation, as if your body was writing the name of, of God, was participating in the prayer, in the connection with the infinite that the prayer means, not just through the words of the Quran that you are actually reciting, but also through the very language of your body. And if you look at things that way, you understand Western philosophy of phenomenology. What, for example, this great philosopher, phenomenology, Maurice Merleau-Ponty, said about the body, our being in the world through our body which is not just that we occupy a space in the word, but that the word acquires its significance through the way in which with our body, we inhabit that word, we are connected to the word. Hence my expression in my memoir of dance as my being in the word, hyphenated phrase, being in the word. You were born in Senegal, in Saint Louis, you describe it as a center of the book of reading, of reflection, and of discussion, where a tradition of an Islamic education developed that was literal, rational, and open. And you were educated in this environment, in this idea of Islam that is at the same time rational and Sufi, that mysticism is not the abandonment of reason, but flourishes at the tip of it, if my translation is is, maybe you can correct that if that's wrong. That's an excellent translation. Oh, très bien. <laughs> and this idea shapes your 
path, as it were. Tell us about the origins of this West African Islam. Well, Saint Louis, as I said in my memoir, uh, was one was the first city really that developed in West Africa in the middle of the 17th century. It was established both as a French city and a local indigenous Senegalese or African city. And it became cosmopolitan very quickly and in its development. So it was a French city in a way. It was also a Senegalese city, obviously, an African city. And it attracted many different people from different regions in Africa. It was a place where many Moroccans actually came at one point, mainly from, from Fez, actually. Also, it was the capital city of Mauritania for a long time. So it became a center of convergence of many Muslim scholars who established themselves in, in Saint Louis and developed their own madrasa in the city. So it became an intellectual center for the study of Islam. And many people would come in to Saint Louis to get uh, education, either in French or in Islamic studies, or both, by the way. And it became a tradition in Saint Louis to have this very enlightened, rational form of education in Islam. And at the same time, it was also an important center of Sufism, of Tasawwuf, where many different Islamic turuq, tariqa, would be, would be present. And so I grew up really in that Sadrizian spirit, in a way. And about that expression, I, I used uh, the idea that we should not consider that Sufism is the past of the irrational or the sheer mysticism as opposed to a, a rational approach to religion. On the contrary, I believe that Sufism can only flourish, and I thank you for that excellent English translation, at the top of the rational questioning. And by the way, one Muslim scholar that I have written about, Al-Ghazali, would be an excellent illustration of this idea because in his famous memoir about his own spiritual trajectory, he mentioned that his quest was primarily a rational quest and that at the end of the rational quest, he found the flourishing of this higher faculty, a faculty which is higher than reason, which is what he called, and Sufi writers call it also, the heart. So in a way, above the faculty of reason, you have the heart, but you have to reach the higher stage in reason in order to see your heart open up itself and become able to receive the spiritual realities that Sufis are after in their quest. You receive what is called the Nafasa Rahman. <laughs> I think this connects to my next question. One way you describe Islam is this process of constant conversion in the sense that we don't repeat or imitate the past, that the truth of religion is to constantly move to escape stagnation or closure. And you convey that idea with the story of, was it your childminder, Alexei? 
who had expressed his desire to convert because he thought it would get him a good job. Absolutely. I'm fascinated by the very process of conversion and what it means, what it says about our own humanity. And I truly believe that religion in general and Islamic religion in particular is a religion of movement, a religion on the move that is against petrification. And this is how maybe we should be understanding this phrase that comes again and again in the Quran. When people oppose the message coming from prophets, they usually say that they are opposing the message and the newness of the message on behalf of their own tradition. They would say, well, we are going to do what our fathers have been doing. In other words, they think of themselves as just imitating and repeating without change the religion of the fathers. And Islam describes itself, presents itself as breaking away precisely from the religion of the fathers. Because as this author, Muhammad Iqbal, whom I like very much, famously said in one of his poems, if imitation of the tradition was a good thing, the prophet of Islam also would have followed the religion and the tradition of the fathers. So it is a breakaway, in a way, from petrification, from imitation, towards a religion of becoming. And this is how we should be understanding it. And I thought of that, I mentioned that Quranic breaking away from the from the tradition of the fathers. In the case of this man, Alexei, this young man, he was just a teenager at the time when he was taking care of me, taking me to Quranic school when I was myself just a child. And he was attracted to Islam, but he thought that his attraction to Islam meant that he wanted to be as successful as these Muslim Senegalese he saw coming from the northern part of the country and being the civil servants in his own region of Casamance. So, of course, and when this was known in his family, his family opposed violently his attraction to Islam and he was afraid. He came to my father and said, oh, I have to go home and reassure my parents that I'm not converting to Islam because they could, through magical ways, in a way, kill me. That is how scared he was. So he was not making the move towards conversion because he wanted to stay with the tradition of the fathers. And I was thinking, okay, well, when I reflected upon it and I said, that was a bad reason. That is what you find in the Quran. People saying, I am not going to accept the path you are calling us towards because this is not something I saw my forefathers and my fathers do. Eventually, many years later, Alexei did convert to Islam. So now how are we going to judge the reasons why he converted? When he was a younger teenager, he thought that it was a path towards success. So he was seeking some kind of worldly or material success by becoming a Muslim, following the mainstream, what he considered to be the mainstream religion at the time. More often now, we see people converting because of marriage, because 
the pressure of you know uh, wanting to marry a Muslim woman, and you say, okay, I'm ready to convert, and etc. etc. We should never be tempted to question those motivations. In other words, yes, maybe they are telling themselves, "I'm just converting formally because that is the price to pay to have the hand of the princess." But it could very well be the path towards towards a true conversion and true faith in the religion. After all, it is say that it is a Quranic phrase that Allah khairul makirid, God is the best tricker in a way. He can use rules and find his way towards the heart of somebody through many different means. And it is really something that we should be insisting on in Islam. You never question the face of somebody else if they say there is no God but God and Muhammad is the prophet of God, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because that is the profession of faith. So whoever pronounces it, for whatever reason they say, they have said it. Just consider that they have their own connection and their own relationship to God. So this is the mystery of conversion. Okay, so we are loosely following your trajectory. You studied abroad. You went to Louis Le Grand, and then you studied in France. You went to the U.S. for a bit, and then you came back to Dakar. You said you had to come back. Why did you have to come back? Well, I had this idea of giving back to my country. You know, at that time when I when I left Senegal to travel to France, when you had a scholarship to study abroad, you were supposed to sign a form and commit to work 10 years for Senegal after you get your degree. Of course, it was not really respected. I mean, people would stay abroad or do something else that worked for, for the, the, the country. But in a way, I thought that I should respect that, um, that commitment. And also, I had very precise plans. I did not think that another philosopher would make such a big difference in France, another professor of philosophy. I thought I could make a difference in Senegal. I wanted to create, for example, a curriculum in logic, in philosophy of sciences, in epistemology, because I thought that we had weaknesses on that front in our teaching of, of philosophy, and I wanted to contribute in the creation by the, creating that type of curriculum. So I went back to Senegal, and in my mind, I was just settling there. And 20 years later, I moved to the U.S. But I had spent twice the 10 years that I was committed to working for my country. You made up for someone else who didn't go back at all. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So somebody else who owes me. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, a very notable part of your time in Dakar was during the Iranian Revolution, which forces you to create this philosophy of Islam course. And the way you describe it is that the revolution catalyzed re-Islamization of Muslim societies, which obviously spread to campuses as well. And then in your department, 95% of the population of Senegal was Muslim. And 
you write that it had become incongruous that we had no place in our curriculum for Islamic philosophy. And the goal of this course was to show students an intellectual and spiritual tradition where one questions, one discusses, one doubts, one examines, and one interprets. What are the roots of this tradition in Islam and why are they important? Well, as you said, what brought me to the teaching of Islamic philosophy was really the situation in which all Muslim countries found themselves in the aftermath of the Iranian revolution and when Islam became so prominent in world geopolitics and we witnessed the re-Islamization of Muslim societies everywhere. So yes, in our department, all of us, we had been trained in this idea of philosophy being quintessentially Western. So philosophy was supposed to have been born in Greece, the so-called Greek miracle. A miracle is always convenient because a miracle has no precedent. There is nothing before the miracle happened. So it was born out of the Greek miracle and remained something European, which is not true, obviously, because you had this important movement of translation of Greek philosophy and Greek sciences into Arabic and the development of a rich tradition of philosophical thinking in the Muslim world, development associated with names such as Al-Farabi, Al-Kindi first, Al-Farabi, Ibn Sina, Al-Ghazali, or Ibn Rushd, to mention these, Ibn Tufail, Shohravardi, all these names that one could have just seen in passing in the history of philosophy, but they were not considered at all. And we were not trained in that tradition of Islam in the Muslim world. So we had to train ourselves in what we wanted to train our students in. That was the case for all of us. Let's say that I had a kind of edge because of the education I received as a Saint-Louisien and as a son of the father I had, who was a civil servant, as I mentioned in my memoir, but whose true life was the life of a Muslim scholar because he belonged to a family of Muslim scholars. So I started teaching that course, and this is how I developed in my scholarship, in my research and my writings and my teaching, that particular field in philosophy, which is Islamic philosophy. And it was important for the reason that we wanted our students to not just consider that Islam was this geopolitical reality, new reality, but also to be really educated in the intellectual and spiritual tradition of the religion. And to understand, for example, that philosophy means questioning, a good use of skepticism, of examination, and that Islam was a rich tradition on that front as well. And this is very important. I always quote the saying from Imam Ghazali precisely, saying that if you do not doubt, you do not question, meaning that you do not question and you do not examine, and if you do not examine, you do not believe. So belief itself rests upon examination, questioning, and that is how you, you enrich your own faith 
and you establish your own faith on more solid grounds. So yes, this is the message we wanted to convey to our students. And I was uh, fortunate to have been trusted by my colleagues with that teaching. So I taught myself that tradition and hopefully taught it as well as I could also to my students. You say there has been a petrification of religious thought since the 13th century. Of course, there were Muslim intellectuals and philosophers who wrote in the later periods across Muslim societies. But let's understand why this period was significant. What caused this? You have many different causes. Actually, when I say since the 13th century, I am following here something that Indian philosopher and statesman and poet Muhammad Iqbal said, saying that if we want to establish a date when really this petrification happened, we have to think of the year 1258, which is the year when the Mughals actually attacked Baghdad, which was the capital city of the Abbasid dynasty at that time, and just sacked the city and massacred the reigning Abbasid family at that time. And Iqbal said that this is the time when, while they had been on the offensive, they were open to newness, Muslims started having this kind of defensive attitude. But something else we should be considering. 12th, 13th century is the time when you had a huge development of universities in the Western world, for example. We can say that universities, the very idea of university originated in the Islamic world. I mean, Al-Azhar or the Qarawiyin, etc., were established long before universities developed in Europe. But when you look at universities then in the Muslim world and in the Western world, in the Western world, the question, the big question was, which science, which discipline should be the queen of all sciences around which all the different other disciplines and sciences are organized? And the question was, is the leading science theology or philosophy? That was the question. In the Islamic world, it was established, it was taken for granted that the queen of all sciences was fiqh, jurisprudence. Now, if you compare those, what is jurisprudence basically? Jurisprudence looks toward the past. You are always looking for precedents for cases that you have to decide upon in the present. So you are somehow tying the present to the past. While theology, philosophy are about questioning, examination, etc. And I believe and I think that this idea of the configuration of disciplines and sciences around the question of theology and philosophy explains the rapid development of universities in the West and this connection, this idea that everything should be under subsumed, so to say, and the weight of fiqh and the fuqaha are the most important scholars in the Muslim world, in a way hindered the movement that had been until then. 
the movement of Islam. And I believe that this happened also at that same period, around the 13th century, when you had this rapid development of universities in the West and a certain decline of thinking in the Islamic world. Not decline of Islam, of course, but the thought of the Muslims themselves. Hence, the title of Muhammad Iqbal, the reconstruction of the religious thought in Islam. The idea that our own thinking needs reconstruction or some sort of revivification in a way to use a more current word, which is the word used by Al-Ghazali, for example, when he talked about Ihya Ulumuddin. In a way, what Ghazali tried to do when he wrote Ihya Ulumuddin, revivify the sciences of religion, was what Muhammad Iqbal tried to do with his idea of reconstruction of the religious thought of Islam. So, yes, that is what I consider with Iqbal was the petrification of religious thought in the Islamic world around the 13th century. And we are still in the process of reconnecting with our own principle of movement and getting out of that petrification in a way. Yes, which is, of course, my next question in light of people, those those thinkers that have influenced you, what needs to happen to move Islam out of fossilization? Education, indeed. And we have to think of education. You know, the etymology of the word education, if we go back to the Latin etymology, a or ex, ducere, to lead out of, to lead out of ignorance, towards knowledge, to lead out of obscurantism, towards openness and enlightenment. And this is a very Quranic phrase, by the way, going going out of darkness into light. And this principle of movement brings us back also to what we were saying about the so-called tradition of the forefathers. And that is what I call the principle of movement of Islam. Islam is always on the move out of the fossilization and the, the tradition of the fathers, responding to times as they are changing. We are so afraid of what we call innovation that the very word, which just means innovation, started meaning bad innovation. By definition, an innovation is always bad. So when we say bida, which is just innovation, we consider that bida is bad. And it is a kind of defensive attitude against time as they are changing. Our philosophy of time is what should be changing. We have to learn to think in a more future-oriented way, in a way, and not having this idea that what we have to do is dictated by the past and think that it should be dictated by the future that we want. In other words, yes, you have to lean on your past, on your own tradition and be respectful for that tradition. But the idea that the past is what dictates your action and your way of thinking in the present should be balanced with this idea that you find in prospective thinking that what I have to do today is dictated with by where I want to go, where I see myself in the future, how I respond to the times that are changing 
simply because I cannot be a Muslim in the same way that an Iraqi person was a Muslim in the 8th century. Even our way of understanding the Quran is different because I am living in a reality where the way in which the Quran speaks to me cannot be the way the Quran spoke to him or her in the 8th century in Iraq. And so we have to make peace with time. The idea that time is the enemy, that perfection was in the past and we have to really stick to that past as well as we can without and with this fear of anything new. Life itself is newness and we have to look at what newness asks from us. What it means that the word around which we are organized as a Muslim community, which is the word of God, which is the Quranic word, how it is a living word and not a dead, petrified word. So this idea, for example, of true ishtihad, I mean, we talk about ishtihad as simply a legal attitude. So you look for precedence in ishtihad and you look at the way in which you can tie everything that happens to precedence, find precedence for things. And ishtihad is more open than that. It should be this openness, this welcoming of change, of time that is changing. And this is why Iqbal used to quote very often this hadith, I believe it is a hadith that says, do not vilify time because I am time. That is supposed to be God himself identifying himself with time. Do not vilify time. Do not be so defensive against times that are changing because I am time. Time is not the enemy of being. It is, on the contrary, the condition for the display of the meaning of being. And I think that this attitude is truly what education teaches us, hence the emphasis on the need for education in our Muslim societies. You eventually left Senegal and went to teach in the US, like you said, 20 years later. And then you talked about your experience of 9-11, which I, where you said, I think that you had to turn students away because everyone was suddenly interested in your classes. Yeah. I started Harvard in 2002. And so after 9-11, basically, I was at the Center for Middle Eastern Studies and there was an explosion, the intake had kind of, you know, multiplied by 10 and the Arabic classes were full to the brim with kids that wanted to join the CIA and we had to create new classes and things like that. I wanted to talk to you about the role of the intellectual in the sense that you're a professor of philosophy and at the same time you live and breathe Islam. Is it absolutely natural or are you making a concerted effort to be public about your faith because you see it as a responsibility to do so in this current climate, you know, where Islam is talked about everywhere but isn't known at all? And so people like you have a responsibility to speak out, to talk about the intellectual and spiritual traditions. Indeed, actually... As you mentioned, I started teaching in the U.S. in 1999. I wasn't fully based in the U.S. then. I was just a visiting professor three years in a row at Northwestern University, and I was teaching, one of my teaching was Islamic philosophy. So I started that in 1999. 
when 9-11 happened, I was in Senegal waiting for the months of March where I would be traveling back to Northwestern and resume my teaching. So when I saw that on the, 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 what was happening and asked myself, how am I going to go back to this country and teach a class on Islamic philosophy? What is going to happen is somebody coming to that class anyway because of the brouhaha around Islam at that time. And my surprise was exactly what you mentioned, to see that the class was packed. I mean, I had a very long waiting list for people who wanted to enroll in the class. And I was also asked by Northwestern at that time to run a public seminar open to alumni and interested people about Islam in general, not just Islamic philosophy, but just explaining the history of Islam, etc., any kind of aspect of Islam that I wanted to do. At first, the classroom designed for that very quickly became too small. And then the lecture hall also became too small. I ended up giving that seminar in the biggest place they could find, which was the church. <laughs> that is how successful in terms of enrollment this was. And it was quite a very, it was an interesting experience and a good reaction of people to get interested in Islam as a response to what happened, to grow this interest. Now, this interest could be, you know, you, you had many different motivations. You mentioned people who wanted to enroll in the CIA and the idea that they needed to know more about the religion and learn Arabic and so on and so forth. You had also people who were genuinely just interested in looking at this religion, understanding it as an intellectual and a spiritual tradition. And you have pronounced a very important word, which is the word responsibility. When you are a scholar, an intellectual, an academic, and you identify yourself as a Muslim, that is your religion, that is your faith. It became your responsibility to also speak on behalf of that religion and embrace that responsibility. And not just say, yeah, 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 I happen to be Muslim by culture, but I am doing philosophy, I'm doing something else. Yes, I think you do have a responsibility because obviously today, Islam is being accused of many different things, and you can see the state of your own religion in the chaos and the turmoil that it, the geopolitical turmoil surrounding it. And I believe it is your responsibility to embrace it, to present yourself as a Muslim intellectual, and speak as a Muslim intellectual on behalf of the rich intellectual and spiritual tradition that your religion is. So yes, it was probably easier to just do philosophy of mathematics, philosophy of logic, and so on and so forth. But I think that you do have that responsibility, and I'm trying to fulfill that responsibility as well as I can. Last question about Sufism. So Sufism, ultimately for you, is to always be living in the presence of God, we just had Michael Sells on the show, and he also referred to this hadith that we should act as if God sees us in every action. So in other words, have excellence of character. 
And these key traits that you always come back to are those of tolerance and pluralism. Can you talk to us about why those traits are so important? I think we live in a world where we have to take into account pluralism. In other words, this word is plural. And it is even a word where even religion itself is an option. There was a time when religion, everybody identified with religion in a, in a way. We are not living in a world like that anymore. And we have a world which is so fragmented that we have to think about the way in which we could all live together in our differences, starting with differences within religion itself. I mean, that is what is so important in Sufism. It is important in Islam in general, but probably the Sufi reading of the religion is the reading that emphasizes more the significance of pluralism. Give all its importance to the Quranic, well-known Quranic verse in which God says, if I had willed so, I would have made you one single community. Meaning I created you with the differences in your creeds, in your understanding, etc., etc., and know that it is only when you come back to me that I'm going to explain to you your differences. So the idea that difference is a fact it is a fact of the word and it has been willed as such by God himself. And in the same way that we should not consider that time is our enemy, we should not consider that difference in interpretation is our enemy. For example, defining Sufism as ihsan, excellence of character, that has been famously defined as worshipping as if you were seeing God, knowing that if you do not see him, he sees you. So the idea that you are always in the presence of God, this is something that should reconcile everybody. I mean, if the word Sufi itself is problematic for some people who would say, well, the prophet never pronounced the word Sufi, nor did the Salaf, so why it should be considered Sufi, etc. Just drop it. Okay, I drop it and I just consider excellence of character. The idea of living under the sight of God and really having the sense that you are living in the presence of God. Do not just consider the word and, for example, call yourself a Sufi or, or blame people because they are calling themselves a Sufi. Just ignore these differences and look at the reality of pluralism and the acceptance of pluralism. The idea that the paths towards God are different, that I can have a Sunni Maliki interpretation and reading of my religion because I happen to be in Senegal. I was born in Senegal. I was raised in that Sunni tradition, Maliki Al-Hab, which is good and fine. But I could understand that somebody else is Shia or belongs to a different tradition all of them being reflections of the same truth. But it is Quranic. We do not need to be Sufi to accept pluralism and be tolerant. That was Suleiman Bashir Diania. And this brings us to the end of season one of Muslim Footprints. It's been quite an adventure. We're thrilled that so many of you of all different ages 
from all different countries, of all variety of creeds, have found enlightenment in these stories. We'd love to hear your thoughts about Season 1 and to help us shape Season 2. Please go to the.ismaili slash feedback and fill out the short survey. Although we will be taking a break from podcast platforms, the Muslim footprint spirit will continue on social media, so you can stay in touch with us that way. The.ismaili is on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. I'm on some of those, as well as on LinkedIn. In the meantime, please continue to spread the word. I'm Aisha Dyer, and you've been listening to Muslim Footprints. (laughs) 